on this edition of Create the Village. The pitch to them was you can have 50% of something or 100% of nothing. And they all went with the something. So uh, it's, it really has worked out real well. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. A year ago, on April 16, 2020, we published an episode of Create the Village entitled, Has Infrastructure Week Finally Arrived? There was plenty of conversation rolling into a national election that supported the idea that the time had finally come that after years of neglect and procrastination, Washington was ready to enact a massive program to address crumbling highways, a patchwork of high-speed internet access, and inadequate public transit systems. Twelve months later, we're still waiting for the federal government to adopt and fund a massively overdue investment in our national infrastructure. In the 1930s and 1940s, the nation invested in new dams, affordable housing, electrical grids, airports, and many other substantial public works projects. In fact, the 1950s saw the creation of an interstate highway system that connected Maine to California and Miami to Minneapolis. During his first inauguration speech, President Franklin D. Roosevelt famously paraphrased Thoreau and challenged the nation to fear nothing but fear itself. He called on the people to jump headlong into their uncertainties, anxieties, and economic strife. He asked Congress to invest in the idea of America, the ingenuity of the American people, and the ability of the American worker. It's incontrovertible that during a focused 25-year period, from FDR through Dwight Eisenhower, the United States emerged as the economic power of the 21st century, precisely because it invested in itself. Since then, we've largely been traveling on the tailwinds that period created. And today, the bumpiness of the roads, literally, is slowing and diminishing our economy. And as we look abroad, we see our competitors on the world stage investing more and more at home. Nearly 90 years after FDR's speech, and with some honest reflection, the American people are as uncertain, anxious, and economically troubled as they've ever been in modern history. This week's episode is a conversation with David Langinger and Jack Wozinski, executives with the Dallas Area Rapid Transit System. David is DART's Interim President and Chief Executive Officer, and Jack is DART's Director of Economic Development and Planning. DART is one of the nation's fastest-growing transit systems, and in the conversation, we discuss the leverage effect transit has on local economies. DART provides public transit services in a 13-city area in North Texas, with an aggregate population of over 2.3 million residents. 
The agency provides commuter rail, light rail, bus, paratransit, and a variety of on-demand services, and currently has the longest light rail system in North America. It has on the construction a 28-mile, $1.5 billion cross-regional commuter rail line to be known as the Silver Line. First, let me thank David and Jack for being here with us today. And I also want to thank Art Lominick for joining the conversation. Art is a principal at Integral and has had a long tenured experience working with both of these gentlemen over the years. So gentlemen, let's talk about DART, the Dallas Area Rapid Transit. DART has expanded at one of the top rates of any transit authority in the country. And that's obviously a very impressive accomplishment, speaking to the can-do culture of Dallas, and probably more particularly, the leadership of DART. So I'd like to talk for a moment about some of the challenges that transit agencies are facing, especially when it comes to covering the course of a large growing agency like DART. So if you don't mind, and, and I'm sure the listeners would appreciate Can you start by providing the listeners with a 30,000-foot overview of how transit agencies like DART fund operations, expansion of transit lines, etc., and how are the costs of a transit agency covered? Is funding from the federal government getting tougher, or has new administration embraced expansion of transit over roads? Give us a picture of that dynamic, if you will. Uh, first of all, there's a very big difference between what I call the the young transit agencies that got formed uh, in the 70s and 80s and later from the legacy systems. Legacy meaning uh, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, some even con- considerable model, although it's, it's really a pretty young agency. The new agencies are predominantly underwritten by sales tax. Uh, second source of revenue is fare box income. Uh, and then after that, you have uh, some federal, uh, what's called formula funds that are calculated on a population, mileage, uh, ridership base, and a few other things. Uh, so uh, I really want to differentiate because the issues with the legacy a- uh, agencies are quite different than the modern agencies, and, uh, and, they're, and they really are different right now because of the pandemic. Sales tax uh, for a lot of the younger agencies uh, has performed remarkably well, particularly recently. Uh, we, we thought it would drop quite a lot. It did not uh, during the pandemic, and uh, actually we're within about 3 or 4% of our year-over-year pre-pandemic uh, numbers, if you go back to 19 and, and kind of get a comp on that. Uh, sales taxes uh, for us is about $600 million a year, just to give you an annual number currently. Fairbox income uh, was in the 75 to 80 million range. It's now about 40 million. Uh, so you can see, you know, it's consistent. It went down by half. But you can see as a percentage, it's quite a lot smaller uh, than sales tax. Uh, the relevant thing about sales tax is sales tax uh, grows at the rate of the economy. So if you happen to be in a good economy, uh, like Austin, Houston, uh, Dallas, Salt Lake City, uh, Phoenix, uh, sales tax is rising. And so without a tax increase per se, uh, we're getting pretty significant increases absolutely in the dollar amount. It, it's growing. Our sales tax grows by 20 to $30 million a year. And so that's a significant consideration. Uh, the first thing that sales tax pays for is debt service. That comes right off the top. And uh, our sales tax is roughly 
probably about three times our debt service currently. Uh, that's why we try to keep it. And then the balance goes to, uh, obviously, operations. The, um, and the, the formula fund money we get basically uh, goes to state of good repair, uh, repair and maintenance on rolling stock, infrastructure, and so forth. The, the thing that's really important to understand about new agencies is new agencies were fundamentally different in the way that they were formed than the old agencies. And so our, our funding structures uh, just, just are different. And we're doing much better as a consequence. It's not really correct to say that all public transit agencies are coming out of the pandemic in, the, in terrible condition. Quite frankly, we are not. Uh, we are we are really in pretty good shape. Uh, the benefit of the of the COVID relief uh, packages, all three of them, for us, it's going to total up to just about five hundred million dollars, and uh, that's going to allow us to smooth out any dip that we had, uh, for sure. So that's a quick overview on funding. A big, heavy dependence uh, long-term uh, for large capital projects. Uh, we're looking usually for 50% or more of that capital cost to be funded by federal grants. There are several different categories, too, too long to go in here, uh, or loans. Uh, on the cotton belt line, which you now call the silver line, 28-mile under construction, we actually took advantage of a low-interest rate uh, program called RIF, uh, $908 million loan, just refunded at 2.26%. So you can see that's a really attractive long-term rate. Uh, we're going after a $800 million grant for a subway uh, that would go under construction in a couple of years in downtown Dallas. So you, you can see that we draw from whatever pots we can. Uh, one of the things that the leadership uh, that predates me really tried to do always was to stack up engineering projects and planning projects that were ready to take advantage of federal programs, whatever they were. So that uh, was always important uh, to Gary Thomas in particular to have uh, plans in the can uh, so that as, uh, as there were opportunities that came up, and there always are, every three or four years, you're going to see an all-together new program, then you want to be able to respond to it quickly. And that has been one of the characteristics of DART is to take full advantage. One last thing just on funding, I can tell you that when we got started, uh, there were a lot of skeptics that we'd make it five years. So as a consequence, initially, we were not given the right to issue debt that was longer than five years. Anything we issued had to be paid off in five years. The thought was that we probably wouldn't make it. There wouldn't be that much debt that they have to burn off and so forth. So it took, uh, it took almost 10 years to really work beyond that and get to a point where we could issue debt uh, on a more normal basis. All right. Fantastic. Well, so th that was very helpful. And in fact, I... I must admit I didn't know the subtle differences between the longer, the let's say the legacy agencies and the more recent ones, the fundamental difference in how the two were funded or approach funding. So let me ask, I, I understand that recently DART, actually not all that recent uh, come to think of it, but DART has adopted the goal of supporting multimodal transit villages and last mile connectivity. How has that effort progressed, and how will the pandemic last year affect that? Well, uh, real quickly, DART has been multimodal in its concept from the beginning. Uh, the thing that sold DART was rail, uh, which we didn't have. 
but that was the attraction was uh, to get rail and because rail was was interesting it could carry a lot of riders it could help us in terms of pollution uh, abatement and that sort of thing and we had a bus system that we acquired you know as a legacy bus system so you you start out with multimodal by definition at least on two points and then the third third dimension was actually paratransit which almost every agency of any size has to do for people who are disabled or elderly and and, uh, and limited in their ability to mo- uh, be mo- mobile. More recently, and I would say starting actually by about 2010, 2011, we could see that the smartphone was really significant and it was allowing us to reach another mode, which was at that time just a- a- emerging, which was rideshare. That was, that was when we saw Uber and Lyft emerge as uh, new operations. And we we also saw another which, uh, taxi, of course, been around for a while, but it was emerging in a different way. And then something else called uh, micro transit, which are really small shuttles, but using a software platform. That's what we really uh, used those other modes to go truly multimodal. Uh, and our, our role has, goal has been since then to allow you to get where you need to go, however uh, the mode is that, or combination modes that works best for you and make it as easy to pay in any way you want. And since that time, we've been adding a lot of microtransit. We have currently 13 microtransit, by the way, is pretty much last mile. It's providing uh, on-call shuttle service, picking you up pretty much at your house or your work location, taking you to a rail station, a bus stop, or or an office location in a, within a two to four mile uh, distance. It, it can be a single mode, just point to point, or it can it can connect you to a rail station. Uh, so that was very significant. We have about 13 or 14 of those zones now. We're doubling that, actually going up to 27 uh, next January. Uh, because it's a great way to respond to uh, low-density areas that really they're just not dense enough, and they also are auto-rich. Ninety uh, percent of the households have cars, and so uh, there's just not the demand. But there are people in those areas, people who are older and, or, or kids, uh, who need uh, transit, and uh, therefore you need some way to send something out there to pick them up efficiently and, and, uh, and, and on a timely basis. So uh, that's our focus has always been uh, that notion of uh, however you want to get there, however you want to pay. I mean, that's been the focus since, I'd say, 2012. Hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, I'd, I'd add, uh, Egbert, there's one other new concept for the Dallas area that's come in, and the pandemic is really focused on it, is this concept of walking. Uh <laughs> Walkable communities, you know, I've been here at DART for 30 years. Bicycling and walking back when I first got here was just an unknown. Uh, Everybody had to drive to wherever they were going. And uh, it's amazing just in the last 10 years, just the influence of the bike community alone. Yeah, that's true. Bike paths, bike trails. uh, it's, It's really taken off. And, you know, and this is an area... Where all my colleagues throughout the United States always talk about Dallas, nobody walks. But uh, then, on top, when the pandemic came, it just really put the focus on how many people are out there walking. Sidewalks have become a big issue. This is something when we built the stations, our policy was we would build sidewalks on our property. We had a lot of stations that the sidewalks ended at our property and didn't go out onto the city right away. That's all changed now, and and any gaps in that 
are uh, being addressed by the city. So this whole focus on walking has completely changed. The idea of taking cars off the roads, not building additional lanes is something that's very relevant around here. So, you know, there's this sort of stereotype of Dallas, but Dallas is really sort of getting out and ahead of that right now. Uh, also, shared cars, shared rides, things like that. It's a good observation, especially since it has the benefit of making us healthier, both right. in terms of cars off the road and our walking and biking. So mm -hmm. um, probably long overdue. Art, I know you had a question you wanted to ask. Absolutely. Uh, my, you know, my career, it, mostly in Dallas, paralleled Jack and David and back that 30 year time frame. And I actually remember the speaking to what David said when Dart was first trying to be put together, Mayor Stark Taylor, Adeline Harrison. I mean, they were pitching. They were going on the road show. And I worked with Roger Staubach at the time and he became a big ally. So that means we all became a big ally. But parallel to that, the, um, D Magazine ran a huge article called the $3 billion boondocks. So that's how far uh, uh. DART has come. People like Jack and David and Gary and a whole lineage of folks have really kept this thing going. One of the big tools that I always had as a mixed-use developer was the tax increment financing districts. And it was an amazing tool to be able to deliver expensive infrastructure, especially retrofit. When we were working in what's now Uptown Dallas, one of the second TIFs in Texas was state, the state Thomas TIF. So now TIFs are huge and, be, and, and have expanded. Um, being able to use the TIFs around Transit Station gave us the tools to connect into, like you're talking about, Jack, get the infrastructure connected the pedestrian orientation, the human scale of those places that we built. What I've noticed since about 2000, was it eight maybe, when the TOD TIF, the city of Dallas crafted, which I thought was incredibly clever and leading edge, was focusing around the DART stations from, I guess, Lover's Lane, Mockingbird Station down to Lancaster in the south side, where dollars were taken from those northern TIFs to help the southern side. How have you seen that be influential in trying to help deliver more mixed-use development on the southern side of, of Dallas? Um, it, it's been very influential. The uh, idea of importing funds to uh, leverage infrastructure investment in the south has been very important. Uh, you may know a developer with Catalyst, Paris Rutherford. He did a project, Lancaster Urban Village, which was sort of groundbreaking, and he used every tool he could get, federal grants and, and local grants, TIF money. Uh, and that's what we find with a lot of these. Uh, Southside on Lamar is another one, which is in theoretically in Southern Dallas and Jack Matthews. And we, we had an FTA grant we used for uh, uh, with that, uh, CMAC funds, and did, uh, as mentioned, walkability, we did sidewalk and landscaping improvements and utility replacement, because the utilities have always been sort of the issue. One of the things we, we've always done at DART is try to leverage development around the station areas, but the downside is 
we can't put any money into that. Our our funds are directed at moving people, and and we're also required to get fair market value when we sell or lease land. So we are really constrained, and that what the TIF has done has allowed the cities to fill that gap, and it's not just the city of Dallas, but all the suburbs also. They they have all done a great job of leveraging and using uh, the TIF funds to be a catalyst, particularly in the early days of TOD, when there was a lot of suspicion of would people really want to live by a rail station? Because keep in mind, most of these rail lines are on old rail corridors, which are all basically light industrial all along them. So this is really converting land use over the years. And the TIF has really made that possible. And then, uh, you know, and then lastly, on uh, it, when the uh, TOD TIF was uh, created, that was something that was done in the state legislature to allow uh, rail right away to be the connectivity point of TODs. And um, it was the city staff that came up with the idea of look at the, the, the projects on the north will do fine. It's the projects on the south that we've got to really prop up and help. And they're the ones that came up with the idea of in the North, 50% of the funds would go to the South and sort of build a bank for them for infrastructure with the TIF funds. And the economic development director back then said, the pitch to him was you can have 50% of something or 100% of nothing. <laughs> so uh, sort of your choice on this one. And they all went with the something. So uh, it's, it really has worked out real well. Fantastic. So, so let me ask, as I think about it, I, I want to do a quick turn here. I want to turn to the intersection between transit and housing development. You know, we're all understanding we're living in tough times in terms of access to affordable housing and so on and so forth. And I know that D.C. is not Dallas. Dallas is not D.C. But the D.C. Metro has engaged in a pretty aggressive TOD program for the last several years. And as you know, and probably most of the listeners, if you've ever gone to D.C., the Dulles Airport back in the day in Northern Virginia, and about a 26-mile strip from the nation's capital, it was a long 50-minute cab ride through farmlands and wooden areas if you were traveling from Dulles to D.C. or the other way around. Today, in large part due to D.C. Metro's transit system, the drive is an uninterrupted string of well-designed, highly successful municipalities, residential communities and commercial parks, etc. And most importantly, a substantial tax base with some of the highest performing public schools in the nation, considerable healthcare infrastructure, and a fast-growing population. So the question is, as metros like Dallas continue to grow in size and population, what are the trends you're seeing emerge and what role do you think DART plays in that growth of Metro Dallas? I think Jack has to start on this one because you referenced DC and he hung out up in that area for a while. So, so, so we can let him reminisce a little bit and then I'll, I'll talk about some of the other suburban side. (laughs) No, I've, I've worked out in the, actually, I lived in Reston for a year when I first moved out there. And uh, that was back in 87. 
So I remember the farmlands out there, but I also remember the traffic, how bad it was. And, you know, back then the toll road, HOV was a big thing going out to Dallas Airport. And actually to make this story even more horrific, I worked for the highway department out there, Virginia DOT. So, uh, and that was uh, eye awakening. And then uh, my final year out there, I was chief of transportation planning out in Prince William County. Uh, so I got a, a real flavor of, and generally what I saw out there was how disjointed the road system was. But also the thing is out there was the importance of Metro. Uh, we used to design meetings to take advantage of Metro, to go down to DC and have meetings with the council of governments and things like that. The idea of driving was something that was just not palatable. You know, back then it was, I forgot the number back when I was working, it was $7 billion just to stay at level of service F for roadway capacity improvements. So the table in the DC area, it was really set for the future investment in rail and the extension from Dulles and beyond with the Metro system. Uh, and, you know, Tyson's Corners was also a mess out there. So the thing is, in the you know applying that to the Dallas area and some of the other uh, cities, particularly the the newer younger cities that, like I always say, with Dallas that was built around the highway system, the old cities like D.C., Boston, New York, Miami, Chicago, they were all laid out back before you had cars, and you had a system of transit that was used and then the automobile filled in. Uh, with the newer cities, you had a city that was built around a highway system. And now we're in the process of filling in with transit, sort of the reverse of what happened back then. So now in the position where we can start taking advantage and making decisions, you know, we've done surveys and things here. We just did a survey with the Council of Governments on uh, TOD projects and parking, asking the people why they made their decisions. Nobody, a very, very few uh, made a decision to locate near a rail station because of the convenience of rail. It was like third or fourth down the list. There are a lot of other reasons why, and everybody had a car. Car is the primary way of getting around. And they liked the idea though, of having transit nearby that they can utilize if needed and when convenient. Still sort of seen as more entertainment than it is, is I need to use it to get from point A to point B to get to work. Now there is a large faction and we've seen this through COVID, there is a large number of people that are transit dependent and need transit to get to their jobs. But the choice riders for entertainment, for sports, things like that, those are the ones that are, are still sort of on the fence and see transit as something nice to have, but at this point, they don't need to have it. I think we're gonna be heading in the direction of the DCs and the Bostons in the future as traffic gets worse. You know, we're, we're seeing just last weekend, I was out on the highway, COVID's definitely over down here in terms of traffic. So it is right back to standstill traffic all the time. So as that happens, it's good for, for the transit business. Our, our job now and what we're doing in the bus system is looking to 
enhance the system, to use the system more efficiently, to get people to jobs and, and to where they live and make that connection. And so we're, we're going through the process right now of a major uh, change in the bus system and really focusing on frequency as well as coverage. But really, the, the thing for customers is that you really want to have that bus or that train there conveniently and not have to wait a long time for it. Because otherwise, then it's like, well, if I got a car, I'll take the car. Right. If I could add just two things real quick. One is that although I started out my career actually with the city of Dallas, I spent more of it uh, when I was on the municipal side, actually in the suburbs surrounding the city of Dallas, Garland, and and then uh, ultimately uh, Irving, and then worked at Las Colinas for a number of years on the on the de- development side. What I can tell you is a very different perspective about uh, transit benefits if you're in a suburban community in the Dallas area versus the city of Dallas. The city of Dallas has always had some of a, a mixed view of the benefits of transit and, and, and transit competing with other things that they want to do. The su- suburbs has never been that issue. They have all wanted it. Uh, they all saw it, though, as economic development. And also, they all now, all of their big uh, suburbs, they're inner ring suburbs. So they were. They also saw it as a mechanism to capture growth that was otherwise going to the exurban areas. I have to point out that in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, only one-third of the region is served by public transit. And the vast majority of the growth is in the exurban areas where there is no public transit or very, very limited forms of public transit. So there's there are very different views about uh, the appropriateness of public transit, what it is. Some people see it's, see it as rail. Some see it as bus. You know, there's a number of combinations there, but I would just tell you, having lived all those different kinds of government experiences, there's a very different view in the city of Dallas and how it works for them versus the suburbs and how it works for them. David, is the one-third, two-thirds presence of transit in the different parts of the region, is that what's driving that? Is it a resistance to transit or it just hasn't gotten there? Well, it's the explosion of growth. you know, Art knows this better than anybody in our community that uh, we've just had this surge of growth that's gone on decade after decade, and it's just gone beyond our boundaries, so to speak. Got it. Frisco, which is, you know, now the kind of the center of the universe for a lot of development uh, in some people's minds, Frisco was 12,000 population. It was just too small to really want to be in DART. And frankly, at the time, people in DART didn't want Frisco to be in it because they saw it as where we would be a donor as a don as them being a donee, meaning we'd be putting tax dollars up in an area that was really extended out far from where uh, we were serving at the time. Now Frisco's uh, 150, 200,000 folks, and and it's surrounded by a bunch of other communities that are getting to be similar size. So it was it was it was a lot about path of growth and going well beyond our service area, but also the rate of growth. I mean, you you know our our economy is is. It's hard to believe in terms of the amount of additional uh, businesses, employees, and, and residents we've, grown, we've actually added. Hmm. Art, I saw you nodding something yeah. you were going to say. Uh, yeah, I'm just a uh, kindred spirit, as David said, working with about 13 member cities. And I have worked with a lot of those municipalities. DART has 13 member cities right now. 
And frankly, most of the suburban ones have been fantastic to work with predominantly at being aggressively wanting to try to create opportunity around their transit nodes. But I was always amazed at how DART somehow kept, you know, relationships with all these 13 member cities, coordinated with them, all the politics being different, personalities different. So I'm just curious myself, what what was the... Uh, secret to to doing that and and really having a, a a group of 13 member cities very much on board with you and trying to to help out i'll give you a couple of structural reasons and let jack jack lived through it all i i've been i've been in glancing blows but on this but uh, number one you had stable leadership for the last 20 plus years gary thomas uh, who was almost 20 years as ceo it was an incredibly competent executive with a really excellent demeanor and able to interact with a variety of personalities over a long period of time. Uh, and that's a credit to, to Gary. I mean, that, that it was singularly, his leadership was really impressive. Uh, working with dartboards are complicated enough as, as well as all those other uh, city agencies. But we also had consistent leadership. Uh, you know, look at Jack. I mean, he's been around from the beginning, uh, almost. Uh, it, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be supplying him some banners here pretty soon. Uh, the, but but there but seriously, uh, stable leadership is is makes a big difference, uh, and that's one of the big challenges of Dallas. That they've really had a revolving door at the staff level for a long time. It's very hard to really interact with your on the development side if you don't know who you're dealing with uh, from year to year, or even month to month sometimes. So that's number one. The other one that's really important, and this is you know from a finance guy uh, looking at the way decisions got made. Uh, a very important decision was made early on that said that to pass any significant real estate or uh, financial uh, matter uh, on the financial planner for debt, you had to have two-thirds of the membership at DART agree. Well, as it turns out, Dallas at the time was slightly more than 50%. The suburbs and the Adam all up was slightly less than 50%. But the two-thirds requirement required that you always had to have at least two of the suburbs you know, Dallas and, and one of the suburbs to get anything done. You know, it, it sounds on one level all pretty basic and pretty simple. But it, I, every year as I work through financial plan after financial plan, it always came down to everybody recognized that, you know, that was going to be what we had to do. And you had to come on side. <laughs> if you want to get your stuff, then you had to give those folks their stuff. Very, very, very important uh, decision that was made years ago. Uh, and that's kept the, the 13 cities together. There have been a lot of accommodations over time, you know, to try to address individual circumstances. But I'd say tenure and then that structural requirement to agree and the big items were two very important things. So, so David, of course, I, I couldn't resist the temptation to say maybe you should be exporting that, those principles to Washington, D.C., <laughs> to a federal government at this point. Uh, so right, I, I have a couple of last questions. And when I think of the Western U.S., you know, we have the image of the cowboy and the rugged individualism and independence of the people. And then in today's world, that the wide open skies, as they say, suggests a reliance on oneself. And in this day and time, mostly one's automobile. So, and Texas in particular, well known for its highway systems, regardless of the city, the infrastructure is something to be seen. So each city is so highly dependent on the automobiles and highways. 
and Jack just alluded to that a moment ago. So I wonder, when you're communicating with the average Texan, how are you explaining DART, and, and what's the value proposition for the average citizen in the Metroplex? Well, there's a black hat version. I see. Then, I saw the cow. <laughs> I saw. I see a cowboy hat there. <laughs> and then there's a white hat version. You know, so it, it, it kind of depends which crowd you're in. See, it, uh, and, and, and remember, uh, both Jack and I are from the Midwest, so uh, you know we we get along with everybody because we have to. You know. <laughs> but I, you know, Gary Thomas, uh, almost every time he has a speech, uh, would talk about. Uh, the vision of Texans and pickup trucks and the pickup truck culture. And certainly that's certainly right. Uh, and we have a lot of those. Toyota makes a lot of them right down in San Antonio. But we also have big urban areas. Uh, and, and I think that anyone who has been in Dallas and the Dal- really in Texas in the last 10 years and has visited Houston, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth, recognizes that these are really big metropolitan complexes. Uh, and the corporations have seen that for a long time. So uh, yeah, one of the other things I didn't mention, and, and forgive me for doing that, uh, uh, was the corporate leadership, um, which was really important. You know, Art mentioned Roger Staubach and, and, and the significant that we've had really good corporate leadership, uh, recognizing that transportation is an incredibly important thing. I had the opportunity to interview the former mayor of Dallas, Eric Johnson, who was the founder of Texas Instruments. This was back in the early uh, in the early 70s, and they just opened up DFW Airport, uh, which was a really big thing, and he was very focused on getting that done. And I asked him, I said, well, you did that, and you got a number of things accomplished. What is your big vision for what needs to happen over the next several decades? And without hesitation, he said transportation. Uh, I mean, he just went straight to transportation and said it's it's fundamental to our success. It's fundamental to this region and actually Texas. Uh, so uh, there's I think there's a nexus around there. There's a lot of people understand that transportation infrastructure and all its various modes, airport and, and trucks and cars and, and public transit, it's really important. And they're big infrastructure projects. You know, uh, the last downturn in 2010, there was when everything really collapsed, the one thing that was going forward is transportation infrastructure project development. We had over almost $7 billion going forward in the 2009 to 2012 area when everything else was shut down. And that's one of the nice things that actually transportation infrastructure is it's almost always countercyclical in when it goes under construction, under development. So, you know, economic development, sustainability for the future, you know, and then growth. Growth, everybody recognizes, you know, Jack's complaining about traffic now. Apparently he went out in the car the other day. Uh, You know, (laughs) we... We actually, if you come from an East Coast or West Coast area, our, our traffic's not that bad. But but if you're used to none, uh, then obviously it's it's a problem. And it's going to get it's going to now get pretty substantial. But uh, that's a quick uh, quick reaction from my standpoint. So so my I'm gonna I'm gonna give Jack the last word. But <laughs> fair. <laughs> well, I I'll just follow up on what what David was talking about. You know, you ask about. Dart, how we were successful working with all the cities and with the citizenry. You know, the one thing uh, we've got a TOD policy that's been very helpful, and it's all you know. The underlying uh, message to it is it's partnership and collaboration with all of our cities. And every city we work with, every city is different the way it's set up. There's no one size fits all. There's you know we've never gotten into where our policy says this. 
So that's from a city's perspective. But regarding how we sold the system, it always takes me back to when I was project manager over the Blue Line extension out to Garland. The, the one thing you always heard was Dallas needs to be a world-class city. And without transit, without a rail system, you can't be that. And the arguments, we'd have these public meetings, and we'd always get these arguments between people. And what it always seemed to be was the people that were born and bred in Texas were like, we don't need it. I don't need my taxes going to this. And it was the people from out of state couple couples from one from Cleveland saying, you know, you, you know, why are you denying the, the young people that are moving here from out of state, the ability to get around using transit. And we lived in places that had rail and, and it's, it, it's not a thing that's just nice to have. You need to have it. And I think back from when I first got here in 91, as we've gone through is, the success of the system is really tracked with the uh, the influx of people from out of state into Dallas, into the North Texas area, and bringing in sort of there's other ways to do this that, you know, they come here and, well, I'd like to live by a train station. Well, you know, back then there wasn't one. Well, why isn't there? And, you know, and, and that's where the concept of the idea of, you know, well, if you're going to be a world-class city, you need to have a, a rail system. You need to have a good transit system. And I think that's where Dallas is headed, is filling that out and tweaking it as we go along, because there is a lot of interest now, you know, and we're hearing more and more of the uh, anti-road building that uh, when I worked out in D.C. in the 80s was just prevalent. You know, back then it was why I had capacity and people are just going to fill it up. So uh, I think that's Dallas is heading in that direction now. So Jack, no, thank you for that. And I would, I want to say to both of you and to Art, the one thing that's clear is Dallas has benefited from leadership for an extended period of time. Let's say the DART system has, and as someone in Atlanta, I know when we lose out <laughs> to cities for corporate relocations, at the top of that list, always seems to be Dallas. So you're doing a lot right. And both of you gentlemen clearly need to move this way and take away some of that advantage that Dallas has. So thank you very much for, for giving us your time today. I appreciate this. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright, The Integral Group. Music